Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Gray skyscrapers, minimalist interiors, endless glass boxes in the sky. No wonder over the years we've seen plenty of research suggesting urbanites are more likely to experience depression and anxiety. But does it have to be that way? Previously on the show, we've explored the impact of our acoustical environment on our physical and mental health. This time, a repeat of an episode that originally aired at the start of this year. It's a look at the connection between our built environment and our mental well-being. We've done a good job or are doing a good job in terms of designing our cities for what I call active living. But mental health has really lagged behind as a motivation for city design. This is Jenny Rowe. She's a director of the Center for Design and Health at the University of Virginia. And she's an environmental psychologist. Which means I look at how people interact with their world and the effect of that world on their mental health and well-being. Specifically, that world she's talking about is the concrete, gravel, grass and potholes you traverse as you walk through a city. It's the trees that line the streets, or maybe don't line the streets. It's the proximity we have to things like small pocket parks and bodies of water. And it's the structures all around us, buildings and bridges often made of glass, steel, brick, and concrete. All of that has more of an effect on our mental health than perhaps we realize. But addressing these shortcomings of urban design is at the heart of Jenny's work. She calls it restorative urbanism. And it doesn't just happen in the lab. What we're able to do now is use what we call mobile health sensors to actually catch what's happening with your body physiology and with your brain waves and your brain activity as you're moving through space in real time. So this would be something like mobile, like EEGs that would essentially monitor my brain activity as I was out in the world experiencing different urban settings? Yes, exactly that. So my lab has done around five studies using mobile EEG, including the first ever study in older people, uh, which was carried out in Edinburgh, which is where I'm originally from. Um, And we have found some really interesting results in that your alpha waves, the, the, the cortical brain activity that's related to relaxation, The alpha wave activity is much stronger in urban settings that incorporate green space. So parks, pocket parks, street trees have a huge impact on really restoring your your mental capacities, restoring your attention capacities, reducing your stress, improving your mood. And we're showing this now through these mobile health sensors. Wow. I know that in your research, you talk about the need for more human-centered design in in the urban context. So what does that look like? Very simply, human-centered design and inclusive design kind of overlay. And really, it's designing environments that are compatible for all people, irrespective of their age, their gender, their cognitive or their physical capacity, their race. And and we're not very good at doing that. 
Um, you said you were from Toronto. I know Toronto quite well. I think it is a very inclusive city. It's very multi-ethnic um, and it, it, it responds to that racial ethnicity, I think, quite well. But there are other cities that really just don't think about the need for design from even, let's say, a gender perspective as a woman or a young woman um, let's say, of, of Muslim origin, trying to um, interact with your city can be very, very difficult. It can be difficult to feel safe. It can be feel difficult to find the places where you can meet your friends and interact with those people outdoors. And it's really a health equity issue because our spaces need to be all-inclusive. So when we talk about human-centered design, we're really talking about design that is empathetic and responsive to everybody's needs in the community. Mm. Can we talk a bit more about that equity aspect and equity of access? I mean, you know, where I am in the city, I live close to the waterfront. I can walk down there to, to whenever I want. But if someone who lives in the same city as me has to take, you know, a bus and the subway and the streetcar to get to that same space is there an equity issue at play there there really is and it's really global that issue um i think covid19 flagged that issue um particularly in the lack of access to let's say safe and green and inclusive spaces outdoors which during covid19 is where we conducted most of our social interactions now if you did not have access to those outdoor spaces um, your social isolation, your mental health was exacerbated by not being able to have fair and equal access to those spaces. So subsequently, there's some really good work being done. Um, I'm going to cite London, where the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has endeavoured to give everybody in London access to a local park or green space. Um, and that the first stage of that process is mapping how far people live away from their local green space or their waterfront or whatever outdoor resources it is that a city has. So there is good progress being made in terms of equitable access to the outdoors, but there's much more work that needs to be done. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us have this understanding, even intuitively, that green spaces are good for our, for our mental well-being. But as I understand it, there's also been more research showing the benefits of living near blue spaces. So, so what can you tell me about that? So I think blue space is one of our most restorative attributes in a city. Let's just define for a minute what blue space is. So in Toronto, that would be access to your waterfront. It might be access to your rivers, your streams. It might be access to city fountains. And the reason that water is so restorative is it holds our fascination. So fascination is one really important psychological process um, that is involved in our interaction with our world. And it's really good for our mental health. And water probably is one of the most fascinating attributes. If you just think how it falls on a shoreline, how it ripples, how it interacts with the sunlight, how it changes its texture and surface quality as it runs over different materials. So it's a really critical restorative attribute and really holds our curiosity and our wonder. Mm. So overall, what are some of the negative effects on mental health that uh, you've observed when it comes to urban living? 
So I don't want to be negative about cities. I think cities do give us an advantage in many ways in terms of increased opportunities for social interaction, for jobs, for access to cultural facilities. But our cities are under stress. They're they're becoming overcrowded. Um, They are noisy. They are polluted. Um, some include toxins and so all of those harm both our physical but also our mental health there's quite a strong relationship between let's say air pollution and our cognitive abilities our ability to function mentally particularly in relation to older people and children so tackling air pollution and noise pollution for mental health is is really a very significant area we need to work on in cities Hmm. But at a time when many cities are facing these big concrete challenges like budget constraints, crumbling infrastructure, why should this be a priority? Like if if I were an urban planner with a tight budget, what would be your pitch to me? My pitch would be that there's a cost benefit to providing equal access to good quality environments, both indoor and outdoor So, for instance, there's a relationship between the number of street trees um, in a city and the rates of anti-depression medication. So if you invest in street trees, you reduce the need for those medications. And this is a policy that countries like Scotland, where I come from, and also New Zealand, are beginning to realise. They're beginning to realise the value of what's called green prescriptions, prescribing walks in a city to help with your mental health. When doctors are running out of other types of solutions. So I'll just say one further point on that, and that's psychiatric medicine and psychiatric Um, innovations have not really advanced very significantly over the last 20, 30 years. So doctors really are looking towards other types of prescriptions, social prescriptions, which can help and boost people's mental health. They're not a cure, they're not a fix, but they will help. From the Spark Archives, 2017. I'm Florence Williams. I'm a science writer, and my book is called The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. I was really fascinated by the research in Japan. There are researchers there who are taking subjects into forests for just 20 minutes and measuring what's happening with their sympathetic nervous systems. Blood pressure drops, their heart rate variability becomes more resilient, cortisol levels drop, these subjects report an increase in feelings of mood and vitality uh, and creativity. And, And that's just after 20 minutes. Wow. Also, another thing they found is that their immune cells actually increase after time in the forest. And that boost lasts for seven days. I'm Nora Young. From small parks to whimsical fountains, today we're talking about the impact of urban design on our mental well-being. 
Right now, my guest is environmental psychologist Jenny Rowe. She's co-author, along with Layla McKay, of the book Restorative Cities. But what exactly does a restorative environment or city look like? So it has four psychological processes and attributes of a restorative city. So one of those attributes I've already mentioned is the notion of fascination, the idea of curiosity and awe in our environment. Now, that can come from nature, but it can also come from other things like colour, from lighting, from interesting and uh, creative architecture and facades in a city. It doesn't necessarily just need to be nature. So fascination is one key component Another key component of what we call restorative health is this sense of being able to get away from your everyday setting, a sense of being away. You can probably, you know, resonate with this idea yourself in terms of the spaces you might retreat to, to to just get a break from your everyday stresses. Uh, Again, nature is very good at providing those settings, but there are other settings that offer a sense of escape. The third attribute is called extent, which is really an environment that is legible and coherent and easy to navigate through. And then the fourth environment um, and sort of psychological process associated with restorative environments are environments that are compatible. It's going back to what we were talking about earlier, about the need for an environment to be compatible with a particular user. I find this idea of curiosity and fascination fascinating because it suggests that we we have a problem with things just being kind of boring in a lot of the cities. And and if I walk through a newer part of my city, a lot of the buildings are very samey-samey, right? The same types of storefronts, the same type of, you know, glass and concrete architecture. Is there a harm in things just being dull, basically? Totally. You're completely correct about that. Dull environments do not engage our curiosity or or our sense of wonder. And we know that those psychological processes are really good for our mental health. Could you talk a little bit more about some of the benefits of these kinds of restorative environments on our psychosocial health? There's three main benefits, I'd say. Uh, One is access to restorative environments really restore our mental faculties you know what it's like after a long day at work, you become drained, you become tired, your attentional capacities are reduced. Stepping out into a restorative um, environment, albeit a pocket space, a pocket park, will help restore those attentional faculties. The second, I would say, is stress reduction. We know, again, from a huge body of evidence that access to restorative environments are good for our stress regulation. And we know that from looking at people's physiology, let's say your cortisol uh, levels, which is a biomarker of your stress. We've seen really positive effects on cortisol through having a greater amount of green space in your living environment. And the third, I would say, is really to do with anxiety and depression, There's a lot of evidence to show that these restorative settings in cities can really help aid depression and anxiety. And these are the things that we're all living with right now. We have all sorts of anxieties. We have the kind of anxiety left over from COVID-19. We have eco-anxieties about climate change, about the future of our planet, about social justice issues. So the levels of anxiety that we're living with currently are really, really high. So it's very important that we use every asset a city can provide. 
And I think what we're missing is the role of the built environment and our urban design to really help our mental health. Are there examples of cities globally that are putting some of these principles into practice or doing really interesting work in this type of regard? I think there's a real um, concentration in Europe. So Paris, for example, um, post-COVID-19, the mayor of Paris really won her ticket for re-election on the basis of an urban design strategy that included reducing air and noise pollution. It included closing the city off to cars and traffic. It included opening up streets for what we call play streets to allow children to safely access school and to play in those streets. It includes a massive greening program for that city, which is both to tackle climate um, change and heat stress in the city, but also brings these mental health benefits. So Paris is one amazing exemplar right now that really is leading the field. Other cities um, you may know, Copenhagen, Oslo, are all really very good exemplars of cities that are really designed well for mental health. We talked a little bit about access before. What lessons did lockdowns and the pandemic more broadly have for us about this relationship between our built environment and our well-being? I think one of the positive things to come out of COVID-19 was what I call pop-ups, kind of tactical urbanism interventions that change a street for a temporary period of time. We saw them all over the world. I am very pleased to announce 112 kilometers of safe active transportation routes for pedestrians and cyclists. It became one of the nine streets the city turned into an open or active transportation route. Which changed the infrastructure of a street. Turning much of Vilnius into a big outdoor cafe. To allow more people to walk, to mingle, to eat and to cycle safely and to play in those streets during COVID-19. Absolutely. It's been life-changing to have a place where we can walk and we can actually... Some of those measures in some cities have stuck. So Paris, for example, has made those changes permanent. Other cities have removed that infrastructure. Um, But I think COVID-19 showed us what we could do in terms of redesigning our cities. I think the problem is we haven't capitalised on that as yet. I think there's a real public demand for it. I think the public now having experienced those changes in their streets, have a higher demand for for quality, what I call restorative streets. Um, But we're not moving fast enough to make those changes permanent. What do you think that would look like, putting that into practice? I think there are some cities that are already showing us what that can look like. As I said, Paris is one, Copenhagen is another. If you go to Copenhagen... When you come up and out of the tube station, there's just a hush. The city is silent because all you hear are the whizzing of bikes. You don't hear cars and you don't experience noise or air pollution. So there are cities that have done this and that can show us what that feels and looks like as a place to live and habit it. Yeah. Is there a need to connect urban planning with public health practices? Oh, absolutely. That's entirely the rationale for what I do. And we call that, in my world, health urbanism. It's designing cities from the perspective of health. And 
it's a new emergent, I'd say, paradigm in urban planning. I think urban planners have absorbed it. I think the public health practitioners need more exposure to it. So one of the rationale behind the book was to really get the ideas out very simply to people in public health and people in urban planning so that they can grasp these ideas very simply. How responsive has the architecture industry been to this research that that links mental health and urban design? I think it's responsive, but I think it could be more responsive. When I talk to senior urban planners in big cities in the US, let's say in Chicago and in Boston, they tell me that positive change in their city is mostly being directed by the need for resiliency, i.e. environmental resiliency, so to mitigate climate change and heat stress. Now, we know that some of those mitigation efforts can also help mental health, but mental health isn't driving the change. So there's a real need to kind of think about this um, in synergy and to think about the co-benefits of how we design for climate change, but also what those benefits bring in terms of mental health. And just finally, uh, from time to time on the show, Jenny, we like to give our listeners a little bit of homework. Mm. So <laughs> if you were to suggest something that people could do in their one or two things in their daily lives, in their communities now that they could do to um, improve their sense of well-being in terms of how they interact with the city around them, what would you suggest? Well, first, I take a good look and see what's there. What is in your neighborhood that could be utilised for mental health. And maybe it needs a bit of attention. Maybe it's a vacant parking lot that could be greened very simply. Maybe it's um, an empty wall, brick wall that could take a mural. Maybe it's um, a stream that's been covered with concrete that could be opened up. So take a good look what's around you and map it and note it. And note the assets and note the opportunities. And come together as a community and try and do something with that. I have to say that was one of the rare silver linings of the lockdown period of the pandemic was the ability to walk through your neighborhood because you had so few other things to do and actually really take notice of the things in your own neighborhood that were kind of interesting or presented some sort of um, novelty in a situation where there wasn't a lot of that. I think that's a really good point. You know, nature is really fascinating and it's just, even in sort of its tiny kind of components, leaf textures and patterns and colours and the way that the light falls through those things. So just to open your eyes, it's really important. Jenny, thanks so much for your insights on this. My pleasure. Thank you. Jenny Rowe is an environmental psychologist and a director of the Centre for Design and Health at the University of Virginia. Listening to Spark with Nora Young from CBC Radio. Right now, according to the World Bank, about 4.4 billion people live in urban areas. By 2050, nearly 70% of the world's population will be living in cities. Urbanization of that scale comes with a lot of considerations. How do we make more sustainable cities? How do we build them to better serve the people who use them? And at minimum, can we design cityscapes that aren't gray, drab, and soul-sucking? We evolved to have certain preferences 
in this world, right? We evolved to want to be in loving networked communities. And similarly, we evolved to want to be in places of a certain scale with a certain size of community that tell us something about the texture of our world, make us feel safe. This is Erin Peavy. I'm an architect and design researcher at HKS in Dallas, Texas. I think a lot of times we just think about the materiality and and I think some of that is starting to grow in familiarity, understanding things about sustainability. But I really think that this piece about how people understand how place impacts them is just emerging. So what exactly makes a building or a space a negative environment for us and our mental health? There's a component that we talk about a lot of times called human scale. And it's this understanding that a lot of great architects over the centuries have had, which is really about eudaimonia or a good life and good buildings. So in that same way, from an evolutionary perspective, when we have spaces that are monoliths, which means you're walking past it and it's just the same thing after the same thing after the same thing Mm -hmm. at a scale that feels totally out of proportion with your human body. That naturally makes us uncomfortable. If that building is up against a road with, you know, fast moving traffic, that's even worse. If there is no barrier, like any sort of nature to absorb that or to help you to feel safe, All of those Uh things are really, they're stressing your system. You know, there's some fascinating architecture that plays with really sharp angles and giant forms that are out of scale. And to me, that's the role of sculpture. And I think that that has a place, but I personally don't want to be in those places for the most part, unless Mm. it's as a observer in the same way that I look at different pieces of artwork. Mm, mm -hmm. Because the way that we are hardwired is to like smoother forms, right? We're not necessarily drawn to those jagged edges. That tends to increase our physiological stress response, our cortisol Mm. levels, versus if we are in a space that feels more natural that can help us to feel more grounded. And so I'm not really just saying like, okay, now we have to go to all circular buildings. It's it's, right, it's, right. it's, really, it's definitely not what I'm saying. But rather, I think a lot of the beautiful traditional forms of architecture over the centuries, really, mm-hmm. they responded to the natural environment of that area. And they responded to the people and their needs. And I think in so many different areas of life right now, we're going back to understanding this wisdom that we used to have, that we sort of talked ourselves out of. And I hope that the built environment can be a part of that discussion. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote a piece a few years back about how the built environment can foster social health, which is, I understand, is sort of the ability to connect with other people. And you talk about the need for third spaces. So what are third spaces and why are they so significant? So this term was originally coined by the sociologist Ray Oldenburg. And basically, third places are places like cafes or 
bookstores, libraries, or parks. So if you think of the first space as your home, where you can be informal, but you're by yourself. So you can, you know, hang out on the couch in your sweats. But then the second place is your work. And there you're sort of sharing space with other people, but you're kind of showing up a little bit with your persona and you understand the role you're supposed to play, whether that's Mm -hmm. a uniform or a suit. And your third place is like this beautiful mix where you get to show up as yourself, let your hair down, but also be intermingled with either people you may already know, but a lot of people you don't, which is why third places are so effective at helping us to get to know other people that we wouldn't know otherwise. What the research shows about third places is that they have the ability to support diversity, social well-being, something that we call social capital, which is if you think about, you know, financial capital as a currency that we use to, you know, buy things, social capital is also a currency that we can use to get different resources, help moving or finding a new job. And there's some fabulous research on the way that we design helping to create opportunities for people to bump into each other and be invited Mm. to connect. And it may be really another part of this conversation, but I think that there's like a conversation between like the forced nature of connection versus the invitation. And I think the invitation is really what we're looking for. Yeah. And why does that, I mean, I'm curious about why that works. Like why does it work if you're in say a cafe or your neighborhood park and you're sort of standing there yeah. and engaged in a casual conversation with somebody. And even I will do this, who is a notorious introvert, <laughs> wouldn't do that with other people. But somehow being in those third spaces invites you to engage in that way. Why, why does that work? Why does it work? Okay, so the work of Mario Louise Small, who is a sociology professor at Harvard, a lot of the things that he talks about is how we are more likely to divulge secrets to a stranger on an airplane than we are to oftentimes tell those things to our own family. And I think that part of it is just the lack of pressure, right? I think a lot of us feel this pressure to be someone for our families, for the people that we love. And sometimes that's someone other than ourselves. Mm. And I Mm -hmm. think that third places just sort of say, come as you are, We can have a casual chat or not. Feel free to sit here, enjoy a coffee or sit on the park. I mean, you know, it's so funny because Dr. Louise Small's work specifically shares examples at daycare centers. So daycare centers that have a part where it's essentially a lobby or a waiting area for the parents to wait for their kids versus ones Mm -hmm. that don't. And so one of my closest, dearest friends I met during a blackout that we had here in Dallas, I had to go Mm -hmm. up and hang out at the daycare for hours, charging all of my appliances. And we just struck up a conversation and then we started raising our children together. Wow. (laughs) And I think of that because it's, I mean, there's countless examples in my own life of where this happened serendipitously And I think in so many other people's as well, Um, you don't have to then make a lifetime friendship. I think Mm -hmm. it's just about being in the shared space with other people reminds us of our shared humanity 
and the goodness of other people. So you provide six design guidelines for creating these third yes. places. Can you walk me through, maybe not yeah. all six of them, but but what some of those are? Yeah. So when I talk about the six design guidelines, I like to picture the Italian piazzas because I think of okay. those as such great examples over the course of time that capture all of these elements. So one of the top is really about accessibility. So does the space feel welcoming and inclusive to all ages and abilities. There's an aspect of nature. So having natural elements, whether that's natural light, plants, materiality, all of that. Activation is a huge component. So activation is about really having a draw that brings people in. And so when we think of, for instance, mixed use environments, meaning that there's a grocery store next to some stores and a restaurant and housing, all of those sort of intermingling, that naturally brings a certain degree of activation. And so those those activation of that third place is really critical importance and can happen in a lot of different ways. And then choice. Choice is something that innately helps us to moderate our environment to what feels good to us. So that means, you know, maybe you can sit on the edges and just people watch and enjoy, or maybe you want to be the center of the action and run around. And then human scale is that piece that we talked about where it's really fitting to the person's body. I think of some of the most simple are are having tree overhangs or umbrellas that help to sort of mark the space where we feel protected and guarded, but we can see out and sort of feel a part of everything. And then the last one is sense of place, which is really about that unique component that tells you here you are. Sometimes that is in a beautiful mural or piece of artwork, and there's lots of different ways to do that, but it's sort of what allows you to see the neighborhood's character and the character of the people that visit there. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. From the Spark Archives. 2015. My name is Colin Eller. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Waterloo and the director of its Urban Realities Laboratory. I think that the emergence of electronic media, social media, has maybe made us feel as though our physical surroundings are less important than they used to be. And I know there are certainly discussions of these kinds of effects, sometimes in architecture and urban planning. The idea being that perhaps if a lot of our lives are mediated electronically, that 
what we should be doing with our buildings, our building interiors, and maybe even our public spaces, is to make them a little bit more generic, make them very flexible. The problem with that is that it ignores everything that we know about how people respond to actual physical environments. And I think just the fact that we're spending more of our lives in front of screens and looking at cell phones hasn't really changed any of that. It's maybe made us emphasize those kinds of contingencies less, but they're still there and they're still affecting our, our mood and our health. So if you've got a regular route that you take every day, rather than just walking the walk, maybe stop for a minute and stand and look at your surroundings and self-monitor. How does it make me feel? Do I like what I'm seeing? Developing that kind of awareness of your relationship with your surroundings and how they affect you is really the first step. Having done that, think about alternatives. Think about what you could have done differently. Is there a way that you can pass through, even for 30 seconds, a grove of trees, uh, sit down on a bench for 10 seconds in a park? Although it might not seem so, those kinds of things over the long term will have a positive impact on your mood and ultimately on your health. I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about urban design and mental health, and whether careful design can support our well-being, even as more and more of us live in dense urban spaces. Right now, my guest is Aaron Peavy, an architect and design researcher at Dallas-based architecture firm HKS. As we talked about earlier in the show, there are ways in which cities can design areas for people to form connections with one another, through murals and outdoor art, treed spaces, seating areas. But if features like these are so good for our well-being, what gets in the way of us building more of them? I would say that as a culture, we have leaned a lot of our incentives to immediate economic returns and that we forget about the whole system, right? So if you are not treating the environment as having an impact on your health, then you're not necessarily making those decisions in that way. I also think people like the Urban Land Institute are trying to show the business case for creating third places that bring in different programs and help people to to really enliven a place and, and draw in that business. But I think that a lot of times it's because we don't understand how to align the incentives around that and that... Mm. Sometimes we'll give lip service to it. So for instance, apartment complexes that'll say, well, yes, we have a third place, you know, a community space. And you're like, great. So who's able to use that? Well, all the residents in the building. Okay, well, and how is that open? And who programs places there? And the thing with human connection is it's messy and it's hard to Mm. control. And it's really good for us, but it's also... It's also all of those things. And so mm-hmm. that creates questions about what, if your building owns the space, do you want to use it as much? How does it become activated? Mm. Because the whole idea is it's supposed to be like neutral and playful and fun and always lively, whether or not you're there and then you choose to join in, right? And so I think that number one, I don't see people creating these incentives For instance, I live in an area that is highly mixed use, 
And yet every time they build a new apartment building, it puts Mm -hmm. its back to the community and has all of the amenities inside serving that community. There are no overhangs. There's not there's not a gift back to the neighborhood. And I think certain areas of Canada do a better job of that than we do in the U.S., but we have virtually no incentive that we say, okay, and how are you giving back to the health, vitality, and connection of this community? So what can city regulations do to promote the creation of these kinds of third places? I think it's both in the third places, but it's also in all of the connective tissue between them. You know, the great city blocks have store after store, restaurant after restaurant, people falling out of the different cafes and into the streets to all connect with one another. And it creates this very vibrant feeling. And I think those naturally draw more people and more investment. And yet, we don't do very much to make sure that those connect with the neighborhood right next to them or that there's that connective tissue to the new development that is, of course, building there because it wants to be close to the vitality. So I think what city planners can do if I was to wave a magic wand, number one, I would say hold developers and anyone that is building in your area accountable for investing in health and well-being. We are investing in them by allowing them to build in these ways, providing them incentives. It is really important that what they do is not just provide a house or whatever, uh, the basics, right? It's really important Mm -hmm. that they acknowledge that the way that they meet the street is going to impact every single person that passes by them. And they need to make sure that they are talking with their communities and that they are talking with their architects and designing accordingly. I know that a lot of the work that you do as an architect involves considering issues around uh, mental health and well-being. So can you talk a bit about how, in your practice, how that turns up in the work that you do? Something that I've had the honor and privilege of working on for the past two years has been an amazing clinic in Waco, Texas called Waco Family Medicine. And yes, they're providing healthcare services, but they recognize that mental health is a critical component of that. And so the way that they are designing has numerous different community spaces for people to embrace all of the aspects that determine their health or what we call social determinants of health. So their bottom floor serves as a front porch where people can work out, they can engage in physical activity and play in a shared park. They can take cooking lessons and meet with different financial counselors. But then throughout Mm -hmm. the clinic above, they have the more traditional care. And what we see in that is this wonderful kind of privacy gradient of knowing that you can get everything in one stop and that this is for a community that is oftentimes neglected and this is really about celebrating them and recognizing their importance but also kind of creating a clinic as a third place in a lot of ways Mm. creating a clinic that you want to go there because You're meeting a friend to take an exercise class or you're going to a mother baby class where you'll get to meet new people and connect with old ones. I think 
a lot of our healthcare institutions are recognizing that only about 20% of our health outcomes are made up of clinical care that we traditionally think of. But all of those things like social and economic well-being and healthy behaviors wrap around that. And so they're embracing those in the built structures. Another example that I love is University of California, San Diego, UCSD Torrey Pines campus that recently opened. And what the architects talk about is nested scales of belonging. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that when we have a dorm or a, a college campus, essentially this can be a time that's a major transition in people's lives and oftentimes a really lonely one. And so what the design does is it allows people to choose the scale that they want to connect at. So let's say that you're more introverted or you're just starting to get to know people. There's this ability to either have a single room or have a room with a little pod of four people. And that pod of four people is then made up of a wing of about 20 to 30 people. And all of these, I I kind of describe it as a Russian doll of connection, because at Mm -hmm. each level, you're invited to a different type of activity, whether that's cooking on certain floors, lounging with other people and gathering, going out onto the decks, because in San Diego, they have the most beautiful weather year round. So they're able to really capture some of that nature. And I think it's a really beautiful example of all of these principles through that space. Yeah. Which is kind of a little bit when you think about the design of a home, you have the sort of more public areas of your apartment or your house, you know, like the living room, and then the areas that are more intimate and private. There's a sort of natural sense in which we kind of become more or less public in our spaces. Yes, exactly. Well said. I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. And right now, my guest is Aaron Peavy, an architect and design researcher who focuses on the design of mental health and care facilities. So in, in recent years, some architects have criticized contemporary architecture for being, uh, for frankly, boring and uninspiring. <laughs> uh, and, you know, certainly there's I live in a big city, some yeah. common features that come to mind when we think of you know, big cities, big modern buildings like condos and office towers. And some people argue there's this need for more, you know, emotional design as an answer to that problem. So is that resonant for you? How would you describe emotional design in the context of architecture? So I'm a science nerd and I instantly think about Lisa Feldman Barrett's amazing work. If you don't know her, she she's a neuroscientist that tackles emotion and essentially What I would say is like throughout all of my lifetime and many lifetimes prior, we have gone with a very mm, logical, quote unquote, rational way of approaching design, but also many other things in our world. And what we have come to realize is that that, you know, feigned rationality actually ignores our innate wisdom, which is showing up through our emotions. Our emotions are what make us human. And so I think to me, when you say, let's use emotional design, as long as that's used in a beneficial way, it's a no brainer. I think that 
what we've been doing is pretending like humans aren't innately emotional beings and that that to me feels reckless. And is there something like earlier on you talked about the problem of a lack of specificity in architecture, like where everything just feels sort of samey, samey. Is there a relationship between the need for something that feels like specific and unique to the space and our emotional well-being? Well, what instantly kind of came up to me is the, the texture of the buildings that we built back in the day, how you can see really the human hands that made them. And I think that there's an innate satisfaction for both the builder, but also the person living there in that felt texture. And I do think as we've gotten further away from that, we can sometimes lose some of those things that make us feel that sense of being human, that remind us that we are human and that we're all connected. And I would just say that I understand that density is necessary for creating vibrant communities a lot of times, but I don't think that it has to be done the same the way that we're doing it now. Mm. I think what we're doing now is ignoring that we are innately social species and that our space is also innately social throughout all different types of species. Honestly, we use our environments to create what we want and what we need. And a huge part of that is both safety and connection or attracting others. And I think right now, the way that we are building is really kind of builder centric. It's not human centric. It's really about the instant dollars of being able to get the rental price for X, Y, and Z. But I think when we actually start to look at how these things work as an ecosystem, we need that scale. So Dunbar's number talks about how we naturally scale with people and connect with people and how we can look at these social dynamics. And I think that's one of the things I love about the UCSD campus is that while the campus is huge, it helps you to feel a sense of place or belonging within that bigness so that you don't feel like you're getting lost. Because I think a lot of people feel like they've kind of lost their place in the bigness that is modern culture. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as you know, cities face a lot of major challenges, right? Like lack of affordable housing, building public transportation infrastructures. Yep. Are there ways that these kinds of design principles that you're talking about yeah. can be squared with those kinds of challenges? Like, how do you avoid the argument that this is a frill as opposed to something that you can integrate into building? So I would say this is not a frill for numerous reasons. One is that it doesn't actually have to cost more. It just needs to be designed mindfully. And mm. so I think that it is about Number one, building awareness that our built spaces impact our mental, physical, and social well-being, and that we can use easy strategies to design for that. But I think, to me, that's part of the role of architecture, is to have people that are able to help to advise in this way. I'm seeing our profession bring in 
more sociologists, psychologists as well. But for instance, we just did a study that is yet to be published that's on two different senior living facilities. And what we found was that while they both seemingly had almost identical offerings in a lot of ways, that the one that had more integrated solutions. So for instance, like one space flows into another, invites you into the next, was significantly more successful. And I think, you know, that's just one example and that there's a lot more research to come out. But I think that it's about designing purposefully for humans and and for the human interactions that will help to make us well. If you look right now at the health costs of our cities, Mm -hmm. and then you think about the additional stressors of the infrastructure investments we're making today, they can either have all of these amazing benefits to humans, or they can increase stress and increase disconnection. And I think it's up to us to decide to lean in and create structures that mirror what we want in our societies. Yeah. And just finally, if you could paint me a picture, what would be your ideal building that nurtures human health and well-being? <sighs> it's very corny. When I picture what has nurtured my own health and well-being, it is our very small craftsman home that we live in. It's 100 years old with a wraparound porch and we get to sit outside and meet all of our neighbors. And we did that throughout the pandemic when I had a new baby and there's great natural light. And through this, we have all gotten to know each other and have created really strong bonds. (laughs) And I don't think that you have to have a standalone home to do this. I think that there's lots of ways to invite people in. But I think that we need what we call a threshold to allow people that in-between space where we can get to know one another without having to formally invite them in. And I think front porches are a fabulous way to do that. But there's other examples of how you can do that through architecture. Erin, thanks so much for your insights on all this. Thank you, Nora. This has been wonderful. Aaron Peavy is an architect and design researcher at Dallas-based firm HKS and the host of the podcast Shared Spaces. You've been listening to an episode of Spark that first aired in January 2023. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samarit Johannes, and me, Nora Young. And by Jenny Rowe and Aaron Peavy. And for the Spark archives, Florence Williams and Colin Ellard. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.